Why do we cry? How come love hurts? And what's a happiness researcher doing talking about sadness anyway? My name's Helen Russell. I'm an author, journalist and happiness researcher. And How To Be Sad is a podcast based on my book of the same name, exploring why we get sad, what to do when we're sad, and how we can all get happier by learning to be sad better. In this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life, and each episode I'll be joined by a special guest sharing their own story. Welcome to How To Be Sad. Baz Ashmawi is an Irish radio and television star. His series, 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy, has won him an Emmy. He's also a podcaster, a dad of six, and an outspoken advocate for feeling all the feels. Born in Libya to an Egyptian dad and an Irish mum, he moved to Ireland aged six, one of the few dual heritage families in his part of Dublin suburbia at that time. His father left when Baz was just seven, an experience that had a profound effect. But now he says all of these experiences have helped him become who he is today. He's come back from the brink more than once and learned a few lessons about how to be sad well along the way. So Baz, it's a total pleasure to be speaking to you today. So I would love to talk a little bit first off about family life and growing up dual heritage in Ireland in the 1980s guessing that was quite unusual. It was. It was a different time. So I was born, my dad was Egyptian and my mum and my dad met in Libya. Libya was very cool then. Libya was like in the 60s, Libya was like the, the kind of Paris of the Middle East. It was very beautiful, very cool. A lot of very cool people hanging out there, lots of parties. And it was a nice place. And they lived there for a few years. And then I was born there in the 70s. And we moved back to Ireland. And Ireland was uh, quite, quite different then. You know, it's quite cosmopolitan now, which is even funny to say that out loud. But even my children are a mixture of Serbian and Irish and Egyptian. And, you know, they're very, uh, they're mongrels, you know, they're, they're, they really are. While I, I was the only mixed race kid in my school in Ireland, you know. Um, and what was that like? I suppose all that comes down to identity sometimes and your sense of belonging, you know. There's a lot of, I, I think for any young person, you, you always want to belong. You want to feel like you're you're part of something. It's the reason you might get into certain types types of music or you know you get you you trying to define who you are but so for me when my dad left my dad left when I was about seven and because I was my name was Ahmed Basil so I had this huge name Ahmed Basil Muhammad Yusri Abu Ismail Shmawi which is a very fucking grand huge Arabic name but I wasn't I was this Irish kid in an estate with this huge name and it took me a while to kind of find myself as in who I was. And, and sometimes if you have a, a parent who's of a different nationality and then all of a sudden they're not there, you're missing all that culture. You're missing all that information, all those questions you have about where do I come from and, and what's my background? While my mother is the stereotypical Irish mammy, you know, so she taught me everything to do with Irish history and culture and language and everything to do with music and everything else. But um, the only tip I'd say for anyone uh, with a lack of belonging is um, there was a, a Maya Angelou quote and it was um, your sense of belonging can never be greater than your level of self-acceptance. That was something that connected with me that I understood that, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I have to be happy with who I am. And 
you know, I'm not just Irish or I'm not just Egyptian or I'm not just a tall kid or, you know, you have to feel out who you are and be comfortable with that, you know. But at age seven, I mean, that's a big, that, that presumably that's taken some years. Yeah, I, I suppose I didn't notice. It wasn't until I was in my teens where maybe you, maybe there would be a lot of racial comments. It was different language used back then. There'd be terms like half caste or these kind of, um, at the time they were everyday language. But for me, they were hurtful words. You know, they were implying you were half something rather than being dual nationality, which is an embracement of both your cultures. And and then when I was a teenager, my mum was very clever. She, even though her and my father had separated, she never kind of bad-mouthed him or anything like that. And she allowed me to go and pursue, you know, I said, I want to go live with my dad, which to her must have been quite upsetting. And um, she was like, okay, well, like, if you want to go, um, you're 16, you can you can head over there. So I headed over there and <laughs> spent like two years with my dad. And I was like, okay, I get it. You know, it's right. He's, he's not the easiest person to live with. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot about the culture. I learned a lot about the language of food, slang, um, stuff that gave me ownership of my Egyptian side so that when I go there or I meet Egyptians, I feel connected. Do you know, there's little things like, you know yourself, you know the in-jokes, you know what shows they watch and their sense of humor, how they react. The Egyptians do a very funny thing where if they tell a joke, they always put out their hand for you to slap it. You know, it's just little, these tiny little details, you know. And then after after I'd kind of accepted all of that, I realized there wasn't a huge difference between Egyptians and Irish people at all. Um, it was quite the opposite. They were very similar in their in their humor and in in in, in their love of music and, and food and everything, you know. And they were just these little details, you know. So there's the identity of you know, understanding the different cultures, but there's also the identity part of of not knowing, you know, your father as well as as your mum, and I definitely want to get onto your mum in a little while. She sounds amazing. But, you know, I also grew up without a father and it's it's a big question mark. You're wondering a lot of things. You don't know some segments, I guess, of who you are. So how did that feel growing up, trying to work out who you are and then almost connecting again with him in your teenage years? Because I saw a clip of you being interviewed by Tommy Tiernan talking about this, and it was incredibly moving. And if you are comfortable sharing some of the things you talked about I suppose there's, um, we live by narratives. So the, to a certain extent, I always grew up with, you got to remember Ireland in the 80s, there was no divorce here, right? So my mother would have been the only, I was the only kid in school who I knew whose parents weren't together. And then there was that 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 stigma of, oh, he was an Arab, was he? Oh, well, you know, you know this kind of feeling. It's a small, it's probably everywhere at that time, but but it was that feeling of, you know, a failure in that regards to to my mother's relationship, you know, and I think um, it was tough. Yeah, there's a narrative that you tell yourself. And at that time in Ireland, the narrative was you have a mum and a dad and a cat and a dog and maybe a sister. And that's a family. That's what a family looks like. So in my head, that's always what I aspired my family to be like. That's what I I thought a family was supposed to be. And then we were very much not that. You know, I was this slightly eggshell colored kid with uh, who, who looked slightly just different to everyone else on my road. And and then my mum, you know, who at the time I thought was the most uncool person around. And 
do you feel lost you know and it's back to that sense of belonging it's it's back to that I think I described it with Tommy when if a parent leaves you or you are abandoned might seem harsh, but but if a, if a parent leaves you, which happens all the time, there's a sense of it is very similar to being in a fight and seeing the other person run away. And you're kind of left there as a young boy kind of going, is this it? Do I have to? Do I have to do this all on my own? And it's hard for my mother, for example, because she's not a mixed race kid living in Dublin. My mum's from Wicklow, so she can't identify with who I am, you know. Um, uh, and you kind of have to feel that out yourself and find navigate your way through all that. But I think that's changed a lot. I always get great comfort from that. You know, I look at my own kids and I think there's probably more parents who are separated than together from what I can see, you know. But there's always that. It feels like a much more open world, much more um, accepted place. You know, it, 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 the times have changed in a in a positive way where, you know, I, I don't think you'd feel as alien now as, as maybe I did back then, you know. I, I also heard you telling Tommy Tiernan that when your dad left, he, he did so in search of happiness. And as someone who has spent, I've spent the last eight years researching into happiness, I wondered how this might have affected your relationship with happiness i feel like it would have made me quite mistrustful of happiness i it's funny i think you get to an age like i said i'm 46 i have six children i became a granddad last month way too early i might add you know <laughs> i'm a very below average looking dad i think i'm a pretty hot granddad i'll go for that i'll take that niche but and we have uh, i grew up uh, i'm surrounded in a family very different to the one i grew up in but to a certain degree i think um people put happiness often as a destination you know my dad was like uh when i when he had that car when he had that my dad was a super intelligent guy he spoke like six seven different languages two degrees he, the world was his to take but it was just never enough do you know and um, it was never enough um he was always looking for something else and there's a certain element of being quite selfish about that and I think when I became a father like I say I'm 46 and I live in this family environment that I live in it it, it hurts it, it's hard to understand could you not find happiness here could you not be present could you not find what's right here and when he died I know he probably didn't die well do you get me because all that comes back. You know, I always say you can avoid looking at your reflection for years. You can do lots of shitty things for a long time. And some people have a great ability to feel no sense of guilt at all. But eventually you're going to catch your reflection and you're going to have to ask yourself, well, like what type of dad was I or what type of husband was I or what type of friend was I, you know, and uh, what type of man or woman was I, you know, and, and when those questions, when you're faced with them at the end, I imagine that was incredibly hard for someone like him, you know, because it he didn't he didn't gain anything. All he did was he repeated the same thing with different relationships. And and hence, my sister has a different mother. My brother has a different mother and, and none of them just didn't end well, you know, but this is what people believe. They think I've done it myself. Oh, when I buy that watch, I'll buy this watch and I'll be happy. And, you know, I get this car and I do this. And, and it's, it's at some stage you mature and you realize that these tangible material things are sugar rushes of happiness. They don't. They, there's no long lasting. Now, listen, if you're a if you're a petrol head, if you love cars and you want a 911, 
and that's what you've wanted since you're an eight-year-old boy and someday you get to own a 911 listen hands up like you deserve that car that's yours and you deserve to have nice things but if you're buying those things to impress other people, people you don't know, people who don't give a shit about you. If you're trying to sway their their opinion of you, you you'll be very disappointed because those things mean nothing. They they have no value at all. It's what value you put on things. So at some stage in my own life, yeah, he probably steered me down a path where I had very strong family values. You know, I I wanted to be around my kids a lot. I wanted to have a big family. I wanted I wanted other things, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to find. Now, I still struggle with this. It's the reason. You're doing it. You've got six. Well, of them. like, yeah, like, but your happiness is it's so many different things, you know, like uh, my, my, my wife argues with me a lot. I would have quite a selfish trait. Like I, I have it in me. And my argument is always like, listen, if I'm not fucking happy, none of us are going to be happy. Right. So I don't rely on other people for my happiness. I'd like you all to be happy, but I'm going to do what makes me happy, you know? And and she's like, really? Well, that's handy. And I'm like, well, this is just how it works, you know? And I keep telling her, because she's the type of mother with that many kids and grandkids now and everything, where she just gives so much of herself all the time, where I just worry that she's not doing enough things for her. You know, you have to, you deserve that. You Because if you're happy, you come home and you have a, a sense of something, you walk in the door and you feel you bring happiness with you. But if you're all the time giving, giving, and you get nothing back, then eventually you're going to walk in the door in the narc. I do this thing when I park the car outside the house because I have so many kids. It's like walking into a, a free zoo and I'll sit in the car and I'll be sitting in the car and I listen to the radio and I, 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 I do some breathing techniques. I have a son-in-law who, who does a lot of breath work stuff and I, I do some breathing and I was sitting in the car one day, probably for a bit too long. I was probably there about 15, 20 minutes before I could think about walking into the door. And I looked across the road and one of my neighbors was sitting in his car, like just sitting there. And I was like, oh, God, this is what we're all fucking doing now. We're all taking a moment before <laughs> before we go into the zoo. But that's what it takes, because when I walk in the door at home, I don't want to be I don't want to bring the day with me. I don't want to bring my work in with me. I just want to. I want to be happy and I want to be happy to see my kids and I want them to be happy. And and sometimes it's managing their happiness. They're still kids, so their emotions are always extremes. You know, um, I have a daughter who has epilepsy and it's very funny. The doctor said to me, just as long as she's not too sad or too happy. And I was like, man, she's ace. Like she only has two moods and it's just really happy or really sad. Like that's, you know, but I think you can do things to make yourself to look after your happiness, you know. There's a great um, Swedish concept called Smultronstella or symbolic strawberry patch where you find a place like you in your car where you can just escape the world and just restore yourself so you're ready to face it again. So that's your car is your Smultronstella. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And I wonder, it sounds very much that you have made conscious decisions to do something different to the way that you experienced fatherhood and parenting. And I wonder how much 
your relationship with your father spurred you on. You know, reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, the loss of a parent often propels us to into adult life with more than an average level of ambition. And I spoke to lots of people for how to be sad who, and I count myself in this, a lot of what I have done has been, well, I'll show my dad. I'll show, I'll show them that I am worthwhile, that I am enough. I wonder how much that has, has spurred you on throughout the years. Well, it's funny. I went into an industry where it's a lot of ego and a lot of love and a lot of, you know, adoration. And I think when I met when I met Tanya first, she said, like, what do you want? And I went, oh, I want everyone to love me. And that's such a weird thing to say. But what I meant to say was I want to be really successful. I want to do lots of really successful TV shows. And I, but I suppose if I'm honest, maybe I did want that. Maybe maybe there's something missing where you think that the adoration of people or to be and a lot of people think of my own kids they are lucky in the sense that, you know, I, I'm famous here. So they see the other side of it. You know, like fame, sometimes if you look at Instagram or you imagine you tell yourself the narrative of it wouldn't be great. And oh, God, you'd get tables and restaurants and you this and that. But but it's also an act, you know, it's it's a performance, you know, who you are on camera maybe isn't who you are in real life. I've always tried to stay as close to that person as I can to be authentic and to keep being me, you know, but but I've been famous and I've been not famous that's not where you get the happiness from. The happiness comes from is setting a goal and achieving it and feeling, you know, I suppose it's that like that um, hierarchy of needs to a certain degree where, you know, it's nice to have your peers look at you and, and be respecting what you do. And there's certain rewards that come with, with success, but you're not going to be successful all the time, especially in fame, because I, I remember I'd always stood with me. I saw a um, famous actress, but she was talking about her fame and she was talking about it in eras. So she's like, I was really famous in the 60s and then I had a, a short at the end of the 60s. It was a bit quiet. And then but in the 80s, I exploded again. I was ever and her fame was in this kind of like stock market of of peaks of, of fame. And and sometimes there has to be more. There has to be more than than just needing fame and money because I've had money and been really fucking sad. Like at my most wealthy, I was really sad. And why were you sad? Well, like, like I'm probably about the same now, but I, I it was, a couple, it was a, <laughs> not, not sad, but I, I, I've earned my money back. But I suppose not to make a monetary, I suppose at the peak of my success, at the peak of a time where, you know, I was getting awards and, and winning lots of things and doing very well publicly. Like I was very miserable. Like I had other things that I was battling with that I, that I really struggled with. And I had to make some big changes in my life to go, okay, this, I'm not happy right now. I'm really miserable, even though everyone thinks I should be high-fiving everybody. Why am I not happy? What is it? And it was little things like I was working, I was away nine months of the year. So I wasn't seeing my kids. And, you know, it's a very good book. It's a financial book, right? But it's called uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. And there's a note in it, which is a part of all you earn is yours to keep. And it's the same with your life and your work. If your life just becomes your work and then you're just giving all of yourself to your work, you leave this void for your family and for you. And without that, it's hard to be happy because you're missing out on a lot. And even though, you know, maybe a success is one of your ambitions, you should have loads of different goals. There should be a complete balance to everything. And I, that's what I'd lost. I wasn't happy with that at all. You know, I was just coming home. And when I was home, I was just exhausted. I was just sleeping and I 
see my kids a bit and then I was off again and I was around the world shooting and and it just got into this really just it, it wasn't worth it all the money was it just wasn't worth it it wasn't it wasn't making me happy it wasn't making me happier you know and I always thought it would I always thought oh if I had this much money I'd be so happy or if I you know but that's the truth I wasn't and what timeline are we talking here are we talking about that was about 2015 I think 2015 2016 and can you tell us a little bit about because I know that in terms of fame's highs and lows how the show 50 ways came about was another sort of overcoming it's again it's the snakes and ladders analogy i use for life and success is it's up and down and just when you think everything's great and then the so i went through a period i was a radio and tv presenter here in ireland i was doing a lot of work and then all of a sudden i had a period where i wasn't i wasn't getting work and no one would hire me and i couldn't kind of get back on track but i had this determination to make tv because it's all i'd done for the last 15 years I decided at the time um, Ireland was going through a very funny stage, but my my father-in-law had a, an office that was taken over by the banks and um, and I went there squatting every day and just coming up with TV show ideas and eventually started pitching them. And within 12, 14 months, maybe, I got a deal with Sky Television here in the UK and I started making a show called 50 Ways to Kill Your Mammy. And um, that went on to win Emmys and and award, lots of awards and things like that. And all of a sudden, then you're back with this big, huge bang. But I, I, there must have been some part of me that was just scarred by it, where my values had changed slightly. In what way? Like I say, by the time I got to 2015, they were offering us a lot of money to continue making the series. And I like uh, in one in one hand, I love this series. It was me traveling around the world with my mom, like uh, throwing her out of planes. And she was doing skydives and, and swimming with sharks and rallies across the Sahara Desert. And it was just like wild and so much fun. But after three years, I was like, I think we've done it. I think I think I've done enough of this. And I kind of miss seeing my family and I miss being at home. And my mom was like, she didn't she had the best attitude because she didn't care. Like she was just like, I'm only just doing it for the fun, like whatever you want. Like, yeah. And so so we just stopped it. So people were kind of shocked that we didn't continue it for, you know, monetary reasons or because it was a huge success. But in my head, I was like, oh, let's leave it on a high, you know, let's leave it on a high and just go on and do other things. You know, I was interested as well in the later series. I know that you you worked with other mammies as well and that I I read that you wrote I didn't want them to be feel as though they were being treated as though they were old and I'm very interested in the emotions associated with aging and I don't want to instrumentalize your mum but I wonder with your dad dying young as well he was he 56 or 50 52 52 52 when he died like how how conscious are you and and I guess your your family of of mortality and, and how much does that play a part in your decisions and your feelings around this Good question. I never really think about it. It's not something I don't drink. I don't smoke. I live quite a boring life. I, I did drink and smoke and do everything and <clears throat> decided when I got to a certain age that uh, to progress as long as possible, I might need to make some life changes, you know. When was that? God, that's five years ago. <clears throat> and that was just me sitting down with a piece of paper going, what makes me happy and what makes me unhappy? alcohol and and everything else I was was part of it just wasn't making me any happier and if anything it was taken away from my own power you know 
I, I felt it was. I felt it was becoming a crutch that I just didn't need. And especially if you're young and you've like I've been a TV show presenter for years and I did holiday travel shows, comedy ones for years where we would just go around the world partying. So I, I did this for years and now it's like I'm done. I just don't want to be that guy anymore. You know, I just want to do something else. As far as my dad dying. No, I don't, I don't think it ever played too much on my mind. I I have a very, I think life is for living. And I think people forget that sometimes fear gets in the way of people pursuing things. You know, it becomes this huge wall. And I'm very lucky. I've I've done so much kind of, I suppose, bucket listy things. But I've very well traveled. I've traveled nearly most of the world at this stage. And... And I, I look, I just, it, keep, it keeps me alive. You know, it gives me energy and experiences and it, it just, it, you can become stalemate. And like I say, that fear of, oh, what'll happen if this happens or what'll happen? I don't really, I've never lived like that. It's amazing. I wanted to ask you about fear because yeah, having, I've read that you've, you've delved into the world of, of biker gangs. You've been to maximum security prisons in Oklahoma. You've trekked through the Arctic, worked on a trawler ship your Scientology episode of your podcast was fantastic. I wonder, do you, do you just not get scared? Is that a chip missing with you? No, I, I, I just think it's there's a switch in your head that if you live in fear all the time, it's okay to be afraid. I was explaining this to my mom when we would do stunts together, like we do crazy stunts together. And I was like, the most alive you'll ever feel is when you're afraid. You know, and a lot of these things, it's not like a physical, like, it's a mental barrier in your head of you use a bungee jump, for example, right? It's you stepping over a ledge, you know, it's, it's insane. Like it's, but it's you, it's you overcoming something in your head. That same mechanics that you use to overcome jumping off a ledge is the same mechanics you need to pick yourself up after you've lost your job and get up and go for it. You know, is is to go push yourself past what's comfortable for you. Like if you've never been backpacking, I'm telling you, get a little backpack, fly into northern Thailand, make your way down Laos into Cambodia there. Like you want to knock your socks off, do that. Like, you know, like these are just experiences and that's what life is. It's all these little experiences. And I'm not saying it has to be these big, huge, expensive trips or but it's you should be trying to to achieve a new experience all the time like at least every week every day every whatever whether it's trying a different type of coffee or not just becoming complacent in in what's normal because then you you become predictable to yourself and i think that's the danger i think you're very good at that as well that you know you clearly have pushed yourself out of your comfort zone but also as somebody who comes across you are very positive you're also not afraid of emotion and i think culturally a lot of men do find that quite daunting, the idea of uh, expressing sadness, I have found in my research as well. You seem to be okay with that. Is that fair, do you think? I think I've had to come to that term. I'm all cried out. You ever, ever heard that expression? Is that if I'm sitting talking to someone and I, I've always used it as a tool to build rapport with people very quickly. So sometimes I'd be doing a TV show and I might meet the captain of a trawler ship. And very quickly, I have to build up a rapport with them. So I always find that being incredibly honest with someone, telling them something maybe that they don't know about your personal life opens up where this person and, you know, the more you open up, the more vulnerable I become. But I'm strong with my vulnerability. If I've cried, I haven't cried because I 
cut my finger. It's not like I cried over. <laughs> I cried because I lost my father when I was young. You know, I, I, I cried because my dad left or I cried because my daughter's not well or or my niece passed away or, you know, like real, real things. There's an ownership of, of having your sadness because what happens is, and this especially with men, is you bury sadness and it converts into anger. And next thing you start raging at the world and at people and at who you are and you become one of those guys that sits at the end of the bar cursing under his breath at why the world did certain things or you're in traffic and you see some guy screaming at a woman or a man in a car and you think that's got very little to do with him not using his indicator it's usually something else you start to identify with that so for me i'd rather have ownership of that i i'm raising like i've we've two young men and i'm trying to raise them into being strong but open men i'm my children's representation of what a man is for the rest of their life i've four daughters like so the relationship they have with men, they will always compare to their relationship with me. Do you get me? So I want them to know what an open man is, like, you know, someone who's, who's strong but talks openly and can be vulnerable and, and, and be honest, you know. It's the fakeness of the, oh, yeah, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. You're not fine. You're just burying that and it's going to explode someday in, in your face or someone else's deal with your sadness like you have to you have to deal with it because it is gonna it's gonna erupt someday you know so then i have two questions following on from that then is is firstly i guess how did you learn that if you are the model for your children as as men and women of the future where did you learn yours and then secondly how are you with anger so my i i was quite a troublesome kid so i was always like i went through five different secondary schools right and probably a lot to do with identity and not being able to feel who i was and and not being not dealing with authority then and fighting back again all anger and eventually you come uh, my, my mother and i the one thing we had was a really honest relationship and the reason we had it was because most of the time i'd be in so much shit that the only person i could turn to and go actually do you know what i did set it on fire i, I can't believe you know it was me and my mom would go oh my god oh god all right all right okay <laughs> you know and through that trust of being able to go oh, you're the one person i can tell this to who you should be the last person i'm telling but it became this honesty and this openness. And with that, every time I told her something, there was this release. It's like having a, a thorn in your thumb. It's paining you and then you, you get to take the thorn out if there's a release. So I learned that through being honest with my mum probably and then became a bigger habit and I became more open. Then I had children of my own and and I wanted them to have that with me. I wanted them that if anything was ever overwhelming, that there was as hard as it is, that there was no judgment in that moment, which is very hard to do at times, but that there won't be consequence and judgment right now. For now, just open up and tell me what you want to tell me and we can fix it. And later I'm going to kick your ass. But for the moment, we'll 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 work it. We'll work it out. We can always work it out, you know, um, and that's the truth with life. You could always always work it out i went from being unemployed for two years to literally four five four years later standing on a podium in new york taking an emmy and it was the greatest metaphor and definition for how the hell can you change your life like that 
life is like that, like what we were saying. It's snakes and ladders. You know, you get up really high and you think, oh, God, this is great. And then something happens and it goes. The rug gets pulled from under you and you get really low. But when you're really low, you got to know that it's okay because things will get better. And it's this constant up and down. So for me, the key was always to stay in the middle somewhere. And I stayed in the middle by staying centered, by finding a value in in certain things, my relationships with friends, my mother, my family, my kids, my work. All these little elements kept me in the middle somewhere and never getting too above myself. Because when I was younger, I used to be quite cocky. and, And someone asked me before in an interview, which I thought was great, they asked me, if laughter wasn't the best medicine, what would it be? And I think being humbled. Mm. Being humbled is a great lesson. It's a really, really good lesson for people, you know, because all of a sudden you you don't take things for granted and you, you, you're able to find happiness in smaller things, you know, to be grateful, you know, to be grateful for when things are good, be grateful to just nothing lasts forever you know so in those moments that you can find happiness mine it take it take all you can out of it you know because then you don't know you don't know what's going to happen or what's going to be around the corner you know i had a fight with my dad before he died and we hadn't spoken in a year and i regret it so much because i can't i couldn't even tell you what the fight was about it was about something stupid you know and i decided i wasn't going to talk to him and then a year later he was dead you know and i was just like I prolonged that. There was no need. Also, you were a child. You were the child. Yeah, like you're young and you can't you can't live in regret of things you've done. You know, like it's a lot of the times between relationships between people, I think you people understand each other. I have one daughter and she barely she like if you come over looking for a hug, she's like just clasps up like she just can't bear the thought of being held by anyone. But like I know her very well, you know, I know I know how much we all love each other. But that's just her thing is just she likes to come off as very cold and hard and, you know, but but we have our moments. We we don't need to say everything all the time. We understand each other very clearly, you know. And tell me about about love and meeting your partner, Tanya, and and having a big family and and I guess parenting, well, parenting six kids for one thing and then parenting differently as a result of your experiences. I heard you comparing parenting six kids to being like a prison warden, walking around with a rolled up copy of Men's Health, just, just smacking containing. Heads. That's it. Yeah, you walk around like, they're like flatmates who owe you money on certain days. You just give them dirty looks and go, you're still here, are you? Like, what, what are you contributing? Like anyone who who's a parent can tell you, like your children are, they're all different individuals completely. And it's it's trying to figure them all out. The only problem having so many kids sometimes is you don't have time for them all. <laughs> you do, but you don't. Like, there's always someone, there's always someone that's, that needs your attention in that moment. You know, I, I tend to do this thing with them where I'll take one or two of them off on their own. I have these days with them, you know, and daddy daughter day is a very competitive one in my house. But yeah, I'll take one of them off for a day and go hang out and have some ice cream and do whatever. But yeah, like when I met Tanya, she already had she had four kids and the youngest was three at the time. And then we ended up having two girls ourselves as well but because of identity and all that i've always just you know they have a dad who's a great guy actually i get on better with him than than tanya does and um i never i never made a difference with them they were always they're my family you know i love them and um i didn't like stepdad or in in arabic it's funny because i my sister mahi they don't have a word 
for like stepsister or half sister or you know they, they don't exist it's just your sister so i suppose i've always taken that on board that you know they're just our kids they're just they've always been there and we try and parent them as best as we can you know and how do you navigate as it is becoming more and more common you know family setups where there are these these different combinations how do you navigate parenting your kids who have another dad as well how does how does two dads work when you're trying to parent is it the swedish who have the expression plastic dad oh i don't know that one tell me it was better than stepdad stepdad sounds like i beat them with a belt or something like but but we're very different you see like there's loads of different influences in your life. Like I'm completely different to their dad, completely. And that's not a bad thing. Like they get certain elements and learn certain things from him that I can't teach them. And there's probably certain things that I can teach them that their dad's not like, you know. So I think it's just like it's never a bad thing like to have different influences, you know. Like I laugh because like even in our in our house, like they we have a Greek Orthodox granny, a Muslim auntie a Roman Catholic granny as well. Like I got called into the school for one of my daughters and they said, you need to talk to her about religion. She seems very confused. And But she was putting a veil over her head and getting on her knees and praying with rosary beads while bowing. And I was like, oh, fuck, okay. Like, she's doing it all. Yeah, she's made up some new Islamic Christianity religion. So, but all these people are big influences. You know, all these people in her life are very big influences and they all teach her different things. But sometimes the lessons can be, can be similar you know so i've never had a problem with um conflicting kind of um opinions regarding parenting with their dad or anything like that and tell me about faith because i know that you did a documentary about practicing islam that the lost muslim how what's your relationship with faith now well my father my father and my father's family in cairo they're all muslim they are muslim i should say uh, he was my sister is muslim my mother's Roman Catholic. They have a thing when you're born into Islam, which I was, you're always a Muslim. And if you go off track, they always kind of um, are under the impression that you, you just need to be guided back to Islam kind of thing. And then Catholicism, I think my mother, my mother is very Roman Catholic. So I, I'm trying to think the best way to describe it. It's kind of I've always think, thought of it like a self-help book. If you've ever read self-help books, you can go through chapters and none of it relates to you. And then you can get to one section and you go, oh, that's good. And you get out the highlighter and you highlight that bit that you like. And then you move on, you know. And religion's kind of like that for me, you know. There's certain aspects of different religions that I really like. I really like the concept and the thought behind it and the feelings behind it. Like, I could never, with say, for example, with Catholicism, I always think of Renaissance paintings of some big, buffed up Santa on a cloud reaching out, you know, and it just never worked for me. I was just thinking, no, he's very white, isn't he, for someone who lived in Israel. And and I just never got all of that, you know. While in Islam, God is all encompassing. God is the hills and the mountains and the universe and the stars. And, you know, God, you can't understand God because God, if God was to speak to you, you wouldn't be able to comprehend it because he's such a huge being, you know. So he's everything. And I've always felt that, my religious beliefs is is part of the universe is is that we're connected in some way and that there's a bigger picture you know that we're all connected to each other so i kind of feed these different levels of spirituality into what will help me be the best version of me 
I think that's what I tried to do. And I learn a lot and I'm interested in other people's opinions and and um, and what takeaways I can get from their beliefs. But as a organized religion, I struggle with organized religion a little bit. So this this podcast is called How to Be Sad and it, it's how to be sad better. And I'm interested to know what helps you now when you're feeling low. And I know that exercise has a big part after undergoing double lung surgery can you tell me a little bit about that it sounds very dramatic <laughs> it was a little dramatic in 2011 remember i told you about i had that bad period like i remember i had three things in a row i got ran over on my bike then i was on a flight to london and my lung collapsed i didn't know it collapsed and but i i got back home and I just couldn't breathe. I was really wrecked. My Tanya was away in, in Spain with all our kids. And she rang me and she was like, um, what are you up to? How are you? And I was like, God, she, she can't breathe. She's so tired. And she went, you're tired. I'm running around after six kids here and you're tired. You're a lazy bastard. And I was like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I just hung up on her. And long story short, I ended up in, in the hospital and someone was going, I think you're having a panic attack. And I was like, I'm having such a good day. I, I really find that hard <laughs> to believe that I'm having a panic attack. So they did an x-ray and this doctor came out who looked about 11, right? She was drawn in crayon and her, her coat was all long. And she came out and she told me that I had a collapsed lung and that she needed to puncture my chest plate to, to release my lung, right? So she mounted me then and there and started like... I don't know if you've seen Pulp Fiction, but that kind of stabbing motion into my chest. So she tried about five times and kept breaking these rods off my chest. And I, at this stage, I'm very cagey about what I actually remember. But I, I think I flung her off me and went to leave in a very hysterical way. And then a doctor came over and he hit me really hard in the face. And he said, you've got, your lung is at 98% now. You've got about... If that reaches 100%, you're going to go to cardiac arrest and we're going to be in a whole world of fucking problems here. So lift your arm over your head and I'm going to stab you through the ribs. And that's what he did. So anyway, I woke up and I had all these tubes connected coming out of my side and I was looking at myself in the bed. And then I looked to the end of the bed and Tanya was at the end of the bed and she was like, hi, oh, hey, baby. And I was like, you called me a lazy bastard and I was dying. <laughs> I was dying. So I milked that for as long as I could. But I had a thing called Bullets disease, which is um is a disease of the lungs. My father had it as well. And um I, I, I shortly after I had to have surgery on my other lung as well. So it flattened me for quite a while. And um again, it's that thing of um setting goals. Cause I remember like like I couldn't walk and um, even trying to get back and moving and, and training. And I wanted to get back to work. I was out of work and, you know, I was worried about my family and money and all that. I remember the first time I started doing like running, running like for a minute and then walking for like five minutes and then running for a minute. And I eventually I one day I did 5K straight and I just burst into tears. I was so happy because I didn't think I was going to do it that day. And then all of a sudden I, I'd done it. And all I think it was all the sadness, all the pain, all the the release of all that pressure of just wondered, I wonder, will I ever be me again? Because that's what happens when you have serious illness or serious surgery. You wonder, have you lost yourself? Are you, are you ever going to be you again? 
And then soon enough, like I think six months after that, I was wrestling alligators in in Denver or somewhere crazy, like you know. So it was a hard period, but again, there was that reward at the end of it. As I remember, I did a show wrestling alligators, and um, people were saying, "God, you were so emotional at the end." It was really, it was really powerful to see. And I was like, I couldn't fucking believe I did it because I'd only half a lung. I was like, I couldn't believe I was able to wrestle this alligator. It's okay to feel sorry for yourself and be sad. I really believe that. I think that's part of your healing. But at some stage, you've got to stop, and you've got to go. And something has to change now. I need to do everything in my power to help me move on from this position I'm in. You know, it's like I have days still where I mightn't get out of bed. I have a day where I just go, do you know, I just, I just can't do it today. I just, and maybe it's from being a performer or being someone who's on all the time where you just think, oh, I don't want to be on today. It's like I go for dinner with Tanya and I just don't want to talk. I want to listen to other people talk. You know that feeling? And and some days I will have a day in bed and I'll, you know, I've had certain days where I felt like having nearly two days, but I won't. I'll kind of go, it's time to, it's time to go for a walk now. And this is where exercise came in for me. It's something I do with my children. I walk my children to school every morning and I do it only for one reason, because usually they can be quite grumpy in the mornings. So we do a thing where we'll focus on three really good things that happened yesterday and three things we're looking forward to today. And we'll have a bit of a joke and a piss take and a laugh on the way to school. And by the time we make it to school, which is about 15 minutes from my house, they're great. They're golden. They're set for the day. And it's those little things. And even though I'm doing that to a child, I do the same things on myself. Sometimes I have to pull myself and go, "Okay, what am I looking forward to today? A maid of mine was laughing. Because I was trying to pep him up and I was going like, like, just think of three things you're looking forward to. And he was like, what are you? What? Tell me three things you're looking forward to. And I went, well, I'm going to walk the dog. I'm going to have a steak. And he's like, God, you're reaching for the stars, aren't you? Because because <laughs> we're in a pandemic, obviously. But I was like, these are little wins. I get to have a steak today. That's it's a nice thing. I get to spend some time away from my kids with my dog. That's a nice thing. Don't you know, you have to do that. You have to. You have to talk to yourself, give yourself a talking to, you know, you have to do that. I think that's really valuable that you're able to do that, having experienced great highs as well. I think a lot of people I spoke to for this book talked about a rival fallacy or the summit syndrome where you've where you've done something so mind blowing and so awe inspiring that actually the normal life and the the day to day and the minutia can feel a bit flat and a bit of a disappointment. So it sounds to me like you are pretty good at still finding the pleasure in those everyday things as well. Yeah, because I think it's like what we said before about the destination of happiness. If you were to ask 10 presenters out there if you made a show this year and you won an Emmy, would you be happy? And they'll tell you, yeah, I'll be, I'll be the most happy. After a week, it was nothing, like nothing. It was an ornament. Like it was, it was and in my head, I was like, oh my God, it must be like an Oscar, right? It must be the be- best thing. Nah, it's, it's good. It was a nice night, but that's it. That was it. Like, you know, just, there's nothing in it. And that makes you revalue things, you know, like I can look back at certain times where I've say doing the show with my mom. I loved it. We had so much fun, but I wouldn't be jumping to go back and do it again because we did it, you know, and I, I have the memories of it and I enjoyed it. But like it's real life. It's where you're centered is is where you're true. It's being present. It's now. 
it's now, it's today, it's going, I had a really cool conversation on a podcast today and it was really nice. You know, it's it's having a stake, it's seeing my kids and being present. Like you can be around people all the time and not be present. Like it's so easy, especially now with technology and phones, you can go to the park with your kids and not even be there. You can be a million miles away on your phone. So it's it's getting, learning how to be present and enjoy those little moments. Because there's times where I've been in the tundra and lying in a snow grave on my own at night and looking up at the stars and just dreaming about my kids. And then I've lay in my own bed dreaming about the tundra. It's like <laughs> you can't win. Like, how can you win? Like, you're, it's you're always going to feel a certain way, you know, but if you're present in that moment as much as possible, then you'll always enjoy wherever you're at. You'll be you'll you'll feel some sense of place. You know, I think I think I think. That's a very wise sentiment. And finally, I always like to end by asking what advice you would give now about how to be sad to your 21-year-old self. Oh, God. Let it out. Let it out. You know, talk. Uh, it's the one thing we spoke about, you know, about the toxic masculinity and all these things that I'm really happy that are starting to disintegrate because what value, we, what your our definition of what a man is, you know. I think these things are really uh, dangerous and uh, damaging. And a lot of the time it's the reason for addiction and, and suicide and, and many other um, ailments that young men or young women deal with. Uh, and a lot of it comes down to not being able to be honest, you know, and not being able to talk and say to people what's wrong and, and offload because you have to offload it. So sadness, if you deal with sadness in the right way, it'll make your happiness that much higher you know like it's like yeah i'm sad my dad died and i'm sad it went the way it did but i'm happy that i'm a dad and i'm happy that you know it, it's there's a balance to everything i think in life you know huge success huge failures jesus man i failed more than i ever succeeded in life yet people only see the successes so they think oh well but i failed all the time i still fail i love failing you know, fail hard, fail better. You know, that's that's what you got to do. So for me, for me, I just think the best thing is is to offload, is to to have a cry, to let it out, to to heal. Because you can't if you keep bottling it up, you'll never, you can never heal, truly heal. You know, this is what I think. What do I know? But at the end of the day, but this is what I I think is right. You know, is to let it out. I think that is wise advice. Thank you so much. A pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for joining us. Not at all. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Please do rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help others find us and helps us to make more episodes. You can find out more about How To Be Sad, the book and the podcast online at Ms. Helen Russell. And take care.